0: Several weeks, the subject uh, on the subject of the name of Jesus, and uh, we want to continue along that line a little bit this morning John chapter fourteen jesus is is speaking to his disciples. I, I say this just about every time, and I uh, forgive me for being repetitious on this but uh, uh, but I think it 's important for those who may not have heard what went on before to hear it and uh, and, and I think it 's good for us to be reminded of it uh, the um, the putting together of the um, uh, the New Testament, um, the book of John was written, we know, uh, many, many years after the other Gospels. Mark was the first one, uh, probably written about 10 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. And then about um, 50 years after that, John writes his Gospel. John knows what the other three Gospels say. They're well uh, circulated and, and widely known at the time that John writes this at the end of his life. and uh, And as a result, John seems to kind of fill in the blanks on some things and give us some information that the other gospels do not, not because the others are incomplete, just because they focus on different aspects of Jesus' life or his ministry. But John comes back as an eyewitness, one of the original 12, comes back kind of after the fact and, and, uh, and uh, makes sure that we have information about what he must have considered to be some of the most important things that were missing ...from the other Gospels. Consequently, he gives us more information about Jesus last night with the, the, the 12... ...well, actually the 11. Um, Judas has already gone out from the time that uh, Jesus begins to say these things. But, uh, but he gives us some information about that last night that nobody else does. And I, I can only imagine that, uh, that John, through the years, has thought back to that last night... Uh, realizing that he didn 't understand any more than the others understood at the time that Jesus was saying these words the impact and the the real meaning behind them, but he 's had some sixty years to to realize and remember and, and draw to his remembrance the things that Jesus said and, and how, they are, how they affect his life now and, and what he really meant that he didn 't understand at the time and uh, consequently, uh, you know as well as I do that if you 're if you know you're about to go away from somebody and not see them again, or maybe even see them again for a long time, and if it's somebody that you really love and somebody that you really is really dear to your heart, you're going to say the most important things that there are to say right before you go. And that's the way the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapter of John's uh, ring true with me. It's like Jesus is holding off the last and the best things until the end, knowing that the disciples wouldn't understand them when he was saying them, but knowing that they would remember them after the fact. So he says some things about, uh, about going away to the father. And, and uh, making a place for them and, and so forth. But, uh, but I want to focus specifically on the 14th, 15th and 16th chapters of John. About what Jesus said about his name. Notice he said in verse 12. He said, verily, verily I say unto you. Verily, verily means truly, truly. In other words, he's trying to emphasize the point. In other words, this is something he wants them to remember long after he's gone. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever, here's how the works are going to be done, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. Now the word ask, we've talked about this before as well, the word ask here does not mean request, it does not mean beg, it does not mean beseech. There are other words that are used that are in, in that sense, in that context throughout the New Testament. This word ask means to call for or to require. It literally means to place a demand on. We've used the example, and I don't know of a better one. If I had a better one, I would use it. But uh, it's the same kind of legal relationship that you have with your bank when you opened your checking account. You signed some documents that, that uh, identified what you would do. Those documents identified what the bank would do. And it gave you the right to to um, the, the, the privilege, really, the legal right, but the privilege to write checks or to place a demand on the money that you have on deposit. It has nothing to do with attitude. A lot of people uh, get uh, upset at the at the use of the word demand. Or to require. Because uh, they think that it's somehow it's blasphemous. To make a demand on God. When he's the one that said here's the relationship that I have with you. Uh, I know the, the checks that I used to have. A long time ago. I haven't seen any in, in some time. But uh, the checks that I used to have on the on the the uh, whatever the subject line is where you're where you're writing the check to whoever you want to pay. It used to say pay to the demand of. Pay to the demand of. That's the relationship that Jesus is talking about here. He's saying that we have a legal relationship with his name. A legal right to use his name. So he said the works that I do, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And even greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall call for require a demand in my name. That will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Then he goes further in the next verse. He says, if you ask anything, same word, call for, require, demand. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, folks, there's no way that we could, uh, as religious as you want to get about this subject, there's no way you can conclude anything other than this one simple fact. The name equals Jesus himself. If Jesus said, whatever you call for, require, or use my name, what in whatever manner you use my name, I'll do it. Therefore, the name would have to equal himself, wouldn't it? So Jesus is saying, very simply, that the key to doing the works that he did, we could summarize those works as saying that Jesus preached the gospel, taught in the synagogues, and healed the sick. There were other signs and wonders that he did, certainly that include the miracle working part of his ministry. But Jesus didn't make any kind of stipulation. He didn't make any kind of exclusion. He didn't say some of the works that I do, you'll do. But now the big ones, you know, don't even think about that. He didn't say the works that I do shall you do except the miracle works. He said the works that I do shall you do also. Now, folks, if Jesus didn't say these words, then we need to tear this page out of the Bible. But if Jesus did say these words, and if he was telling the truth, if Jesus was an honest man, if he said these and and it's not true, then uh, I think we've got our trust in the wrong person. He wouldn't be a worthy savior. He wouldn't be a sinless savior if he's a liar. So if Jesus said this, and if he told the truth, then we're left with somewhat of a dilemma for the modern-day church. That dilemma is very simply... That Jesus said the church would have power. That the church does not seem to be exhibiting. Jesus made no distinction. About him doing better works than we did. As a matter of fact. He said that we would even do greater works than him. Now I have no idea what those works are. I can show you a couple of examples. in In the New Testament. That might fall into that category. But I can't even. Bank on that to be honest with you. I don't know what the greater works are. I'm going to leave those to him. I know some people in in certain church circles say, well, we're doing the greater works because we're getting people saved. Folks, Jesus got these people saved. So at the very least, salvation for the apostles was a part of the works that he did. So there's no way we can hide behind, well, we're doing greater works because we're getting people saved and ignore the fact that Jesus said we'd do the same works as him, which include miracles, which included healings. Amen? Amen. So Jesus said, he that believeth on me. Now, we've made a big deal about believing in him. We've made, and, and, and we've placed the right emphasis, in my opinion, on the subject of faith. Because faith is such a foreign concept to the natural way of thinking, man's natural way of thinking. So we've emphasized believing in the unseen, believing in what you can't yet see and feel and so forth. And that's all right and that's all true. But notice Jesus did not say, verily, verily, I say unto you, the works that i do if you uh, the works that i do he that believeth in me the very few that believe in me the works that i do shall he do also jesus did not make it seem like it would be just a select few he did not make it seem he didn't say the ministers that believe in me he didn't say anything of the sort he made it seem like it would be an easy thing an easy category to be part of didn't he if that were not true wouldn't he have put more restrictions on it wouldn't he have told now now Believing is not just simply getting saved. Believing means X, Y, Z. But he didn't. He left it out there in kind of a general way. He said, he that believeth on me or believeth on my name. Believing in his name means believing that he came to the earth, died on the cross and went to the Father. That's believing on the name of Jesus. It's the same thing as being saved. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about being saved as being baptized in the name. Now, I know people parse it and people divide different things. And and you get a lot of the church that believes in salvation but not in any of the the other supernatural works or aspects of Jesus' ministry for today and and stuff like that. I realize that there are a lot of different attitudes and a lot of different ideas on things. But that doesn't seem to be Jesus' position. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me or believeth in my name. Those are interchangeable terms, phrases. Phrases. He that believeth on me or believeth in my name, the works that I do shall he do also. And even greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Jesus doesn't seem to be stingy with his name, does he? He doesn't seem to take the position that, well, now, uh, you know, don't, don't ever think you'll do as great a works as me, because I've got to stay on the top of the pile. No, he said, greater works shall you do. In other words, the greater works are going to be made available because he is going to the Father. The greater works are going to be works that are available to us because of a relationship that he makes for us that even Jesus himself on the earth didn't have. Now, some people might take that wrong. I'm not saying that we're greater than Jesus in any way whatsoever. But what we have with Jesus right now, what we have with the Father through Jesus right now is different and according to the Holy Ghost, a better covenant than what Jesus had when he was here on the earth. Jesus was operating as a redeemed man, under, as a sinless man, under the old covenant. A born-again man is a greater covenant with God than that. Are you out there? So Jesus said, you'll do greater works. How are you going to do them? And whatsoever you shall call for, require, or demand in my name. I will do it. Now here's the only restriction that he places on it. The next phrase, the next part of the verse is the only restriction that Jesus places on it whatsoever. He says that the Father may be glorified in the Son. I see that in two ways. Number one, I see that as Jesus saying the reason why he will honor his word uh, or his name, the use of his name. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. But on the other hand, I see as a restriction. The use of the name of Jesus in any way that doesn't glorify the Father is not under the the boundaries of what Jesus said he would do. Now hold your finger here. We're going to come back to this. But turn back with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Let's start reading in verse 29. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes, say great multitudes. Anybody have any idea how many people that is? Sounds like a lot. And a small tiny group that had exclusive rights to Jesus. Now this seemed to work for everybody, didn't it? And great multitudes came unto him, having with them... Those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Now, I want you to notice who the people were that made up these great multitudes. Among the great multitudes, there were people that were blind. That means you can't see. People that were dumb, that means you can't talk. People that were lame, that means you can't walk. And people that were maimed, that means missing body parts. That's what maimed means, isn't it? And Jesus healed them. In so much, verse 31, in so much that the multitude wondered. Notice that phrase. They wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be made whole. That means replacing body parts. The lame to walk and the blind to see. Now, what was the end result of these healing works? And they glorified the God of Israel. Now back to what we just talked about in John chapter 14. Jesus said. Verily verily I say unto you. He that believeth on me the works that I do. Shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do. Because I go unto my father. And. Whatsoever you call for. Require or demand in my name. That will I do. That the father may be glorified in the son. Notice in Jesus ministry. What works glorified God. The blind seeing. The lame walking. The dumb speaking. And the main to be made whole. I wonder if Jesus is thinking about something else when he tells the disciples on the last night that he's with them. Whatsoever you call for, require, or demand in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Well, he's just talking about doing the same works as him. We know these are works that are identified in Matthew's gospel as things that he did. The other gospels, John's included, bears this out. So when Jesus is talking about doing the same works, he's got to be thinking of to include healing the sick... Causing the blind to see, causing the lame to walk, causing the dumb to speak, and causing the maimed to be made whole, or body parts reappearing on people. Now that's what Jesus said he would do so that the glorification of the Father through the Son would continue after his death and resurrection. Did he not? You notice how quiet people get when you start talking about stuff like this? Because everybody's thinking, where's he going? What's he going to do? We're going to have blind people see today. We're going to have lame people walking today. We're going to see a body part show up. That's where our thinking goes, isn't it? And all of us hunger for it. Every one of us hunger for it. Now, why do we hunger for it? Because we want to see a show. Well, some people might. But the hunger that we have is a spiritual hunger. It's a hunger from within where God lives. Why would there be a spiritual hunger to see the things that the Bible says that we would see? Because God built that into us. God wants you to see it. It's not us, and the devil will try to beat you up any way you can. It's not us saying... Well, you're, you know, or having the attitude that, well, we're just selfish. We just want something that God really doesn't want. Folks, the very fact that Jesus said, he that believeth in me, the works that I do shall he do also, is Jesus saying, I want you to continue the work. You know, one of the things that I read uh, after uh, Smith Wilkinsworth, he said one of the things that started him on a uh, healing and a miracle ministry was when he found out, when he realized Reading the Bible, he realized that Jesus wanted him to do the miraculous. That seems like a simple thing, doesn't it? But how many of us really realize that? Too few. Back to John chapter 14, please. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also for those that believe in his name. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father, and whatsoever you shall call for, or require, or ask, or demand in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We already know the works that the Bible tells us glorify the Son. Now, that's not the only thing, certainly, but that's the, the miracles are included. If you shall ask, call for, require, demand anything in my name, I will do it. Look with me over to chapter 15. Jesus talks about abiding in him, staying connected with him. Why is he talking about being connected with him? Because he's going to make a place for us with the Father. That's what the resurrection was all about. It's making a place for you and me in the Father. So he said, abide in me, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. So he's talking about fellowship, isn't he? He's not talking about just relationship. Relationship comes through making Jesus the Lord of your life. The words abiding in you is fellowship. In other words, growing in the knowledge of who you are joined with. Growing in the knowledge of who we are in Christ and the power in that name. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask, same word, call for, require, demand. You shall ask, call for, require, demand, what you will. And it shall be done unto you. Now, it would seem a scary proposition for God to put a promise into man's hands where he could have what he wants rather than God saying, if you ask what I want. And so much of the church world, and you've heard it just as well as I have, explains away unanswered prayer saying, well, it must not have been the will of God. Yet Jesus is saying that his name provides an opportunity for you to ask what you will. Now, there is a boundary there, whether you realize it or not, and that is his word abiding in you. See, if his word's abiding in you, you're not going to ask for something outside of the will of God, because the word of God is the will of God revealed to us. But there's a wide, wide road there. There's a lot of things that the Bible says specifically about the will of God, but there's a lot of things that the Bible leaves open to us as far as his will is concerned. For example, what we receive from him has more to do with you and your will than it has to do with God and his will. Jesus uses, uses the example many times, if you know how to be good parents to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father be good to you, his child? Well, what does that include? That includes anything that a good parent would do for his child. Are you out there? So Jesus said, very simply, he said, if you, and, and remember, this is his last night. This is the important stuff. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's conditional. Abiding in him means you've been baptized in the name of Jesus or been born again. Those would be interchangeable terms. That wasn't available to them at the time Jesus says this, but it will be soon thereafter. So he said, if you abide in me and if my words abide or live on in you. You shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. You shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Notice verse 8. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit so shall you be my disciples. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, that doesn't say anything about the name of Jesus. Yeah, it does. Because if you're abiding in him, you are abiding in the name of Jesus. See, the name of Jesus is not some good luck charm or some phrase that we use to let God know we're coming to a close of our prayer. Which is the way it seems to me that most of the church uses it. They don't recognize or or focus on the fact that there's power in the name of Jesus. It's just kind of a lucky phrase or the, the ritual that we're supposed to end our prayers with. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, if you're in me, you're in my name. He that believeth in me, that means in the name of Jesus. He that believeth in me means somebody that believes that Jesus came to the earth, died on the cross, and was raised from the dead. That's a believer in the name of Jesus. It doesn't mean some special, supernatural, unreachable measure of faith that only a few select people will have. Some special faith in the name of Jesus. Let me ask you this. How much faith does it take you to use? How much faith do you have to use to write a check on your checking account? Not much if you know your deposit. If you know you've got $1,000 on deposit in the bank, it takes no faith whatsoever to write a check for $500. It's a legal transaction. Yet there is faith involved, but it's unconscious faith. It's not faith that you're focusing on. You don't write the check saying, boy, I hope the bank comes through. Hope the bank holds up their end of the deal. You don't, do you? You expect them to. Why? Because they're legally required to. You've got a contract that says they will if you will. So it really takes no conscious faith on the part of the individual to use the name of Jesus. If you know what's on deposit. Now if you've got a thousand dollars on deposit. You write a check for fifteen hundred dollars. That may take some faith. Unless you know you've got a special relationship with the bank that goes beyond. that, That enables them to honor your checks beyond the amount that you have on deposit. But even in that sense you could have faith for it to come to pass. If that were the case. But you're going to have to know. He'd be a fool that would just take a chance on that wouldn't it? So what kind of faith does it take? And is that what Jesus is talking about? Is he talking about those that believe in his name. As being somebody that has some special unreachable faith. Except for a, for a select few. It's not the terminology he uses. If that's what he meant. And he used the terminology that he used instead. Then he defrauded us. Because he left us to believe that it's just simply believing in his name. Believing that he was sent from the Father and going back to him. Which basically is the criteria for being saved, being born again. And notice again verse 8. He said, herein is my Father glorified. Now remember we just read, whatsoever you ask in my name, I will do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now he's telling us what glorifies the Father. One of the things that glorifies the father is you placing a demand on his name so that you receive the answers that you need or the things that you need in life. That glorifies God for you to be provided for. What glorifies God according to Jesus, if he knew what he was talking about, is you receiving from God. And notice the power in his name. The name through relationship and the legal right that you have to ask, to call for, require, demand of the father. In the name of Jesus. Hearing is my Father glorified. Notice it would seem to me that some people in the church would think that that reads, Hearing is my Father, get very angry and upset. But instead, Jesus said, Hearing is my Father glorified. You getting answers in your prayer life, you getting results in the use of the name of Jesus, glorifies God. Not Jesus getting results, you getting results. Glorifies God. We're back to Wigglesworth revelation. God wants you to use the name of Jesus in a miraculous and supernatural way. He wants you to get miraculous results. Notice verse 16. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you. Now, Some people stop right there and say, yeah, but that's talking about people that are ordained to the ministry. No, it's not. It's talking about verse 14. You're my friends if you do whatever I command you. He said, I've chosen you and ordained you to be friends. Not ordained you to be ministers. I've ordained you to be friends. The word friends is a, is a covenant word. It means partners. He said you're not servants anymore. Because I'm showing you what I'm going to do ahead of time. Here's the one rule. The one law of the commandment. Verse 13 is that you walk in love. And then he says if you keep that law of love. You're my friends. You're my covenant partners. Because that is the only law. There is no ten commandments for the believer. There's one commandment and that's the law of love. For those that have been born again. It doesn't mean the ten commandments are wrong. It means they're all fulfilled in the one law of love. If you walk in love. You're not going to steal. You're not going to lie. You're not going to commit adultery. And so forth. So it's all fulfilled in one law. And that's the law of love. And Jesus said you're my friends. If you do what I command you. Or in other words. If you walk in love. And that's the context that he's talking about. You've not chosen me. But I've chosen you. And I've ordained you. Well, what have we been chosen and ordained for? That you should go and bring forth fruit. And that your fruit should remain. Now, what fruit is he talking about? He's got to be talking about the same fruit that he just mentioned in verse 8. Where he said, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Why would fruit mean one thing in verse 8 and another thing in verse 16? He's talking about results. Supernatural and even miraculous results that come from the use of the name of Jesus. Jesus. He said, I've called you and chosen, I've chosen you and ordained you that you should bring forth supernatural results in my name. I'll prove it to you. And that your fruit should remain, not just temporary stuff, but long lasting stuff. And the next thing he says, that whatsoever you shall ask, call for require, demand of the father in my name. He may give it you. Jesus is saying two different things about his name. He's saying, you use my name. Whatever you call for, require, demand in my name, I'll do it. Now he's saying, whatever you call for, require, or demand in my name, the Father will give it to you. So there are some things that we just use the name of Jesus for and Jesus shows up. There are other things we use the name of Jesus for and the Father gives it to us. Either way, it brings supernatural and even miraculous results. Special faith to do it. If so, he omitted telling us. Again, it goes back to the checking account. It takes no faith whatsoever for you to write a check if you know what's on deposit. And that's the problem with the church. We don't know the power that's deposited in the name of Jesus. uh, Chapter 16, verse 23. And in that day, talking about the day, of the, the day of the church following the resurrection. And in that day, you shall ask me nothing. The, this word ask does not mean call for or require or demand. It, it's the word translated pray in most cases. It's the word translated pray in verse 26. So in other words, he's saying, and, and many translations read this way. And in that day, you shall ask me no more questions. But... Whatsoever you shall ask, different word, verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask, call for, require, demand, of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So in other words, he's very simply making the point that once I'm raised from the dead, you don't come talk to me about it. You talk to the Father in my name and he'll give you whatever I need, whatever you need. Hitherto, up till now, verse 24, have you asked, call for, require, demand, nothing in my name. Ask call for require demand, and you shall receive that your joy may be full. please notice that Jesus intended for the work of, for the, the name his name to be used so that your life was made joyful And folks, let me go a little bit further with this if your life is not joyful or if any christian's life is not joyful, it would seem to return back to the very fact that they're not utilizing the name of Jesus in the way Jesus intended. It may be that they're trying to write checks. That they don't know about what's on deposit. And so they're discouraged. It may be that they won't write checks. They don't think they have a deposit. So they won't write checks. Can I ask you a question? I want you to just check out into Fantasy Island for me. For just a moment. For just a brief moment. What would your life be? If you could have everything that you needed, whether physical, whether financial, or whatever, if you could have everything that you needed and there were no more trials, what would your life be? Now, some of you just checked out and I'll never get you back. <laughs> I think we could simply clarify or qualify it to say our life would be full of joy, would they not? What problem would you have if you knew that whatever, whatever prayer you prayed, whatever thing you asked God for, in the name of Jesus, you could have? So what if there is a devil still here? So what if he does attack us with sickness? We can get our healing in the name of Jesus. What if he does attack us financially? We can get the answers we need financially in the name of Jesus. What problem would there be in your life that would steal your joy? Is that not what Jesus is saying? They have, you or I, either one, neither one may be living up to that. But is that not what Jesus is saying? See, I think the problem too many times with the church is we don't think through what's really being said. Jesus said, up till now, you've asked me nothing. They've been, been doing pretty good up to that point. They've seen signs and wonders and miracles. They've seen the, uh, the loaves and the fishes multiplied. They've seen Jesus walk on the water. They even saw Peter walk on the water. They've seen the blind walk. Well, I'm sorry. They've seen the blind see. Blind walking might not be a miracle. Huh? They've seen the blind see. They've seen the lame walk. They've seen the maimed to be made whole. And the dumb to speak. That's not too bad. It's not a bad start. But Jesus said... That it was going to be better. He said up to this point you've asked nothing in my name. You haven't come to, to me to call for, require, or demand anything in my name. You've only sought me as the answers for your questions. But in that day truly, truly I say unto you. Whatsoever you shall call for, require or demand of the Father in my name. He will give it to you. In other words he'll treat you just like he's treated me. Ask that you may receive, that your joy may be full. He goes further and says, These things have I spoken to you in Proverbs, meaning up till now. But the time comes when I shall no more speak to you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. What he's saying is, after my resurrection, things will become very clear to you, and I'll talk to you by the Holy Holy Spirit. I'll make things very clear and very plain by the Holy Spirit. Which, by the way, is the whole reason we have the New Testament. The Gospel of John is part of the fulfillment of what Jesus said because now we can see and understand plainly. They couldn't where they were coming from. Verse 26. And at that day you shall ask, call for require, demand in my name. And I say not to you that I will pray to the Father for you. Now this word pray is the word ask in verse 23. He's saying that you need to understand in that day I'm not going to pray for you. I've been praying for you up to this point. You've been coming to me rather than going to the Father because you didn't have any place with the Father. I had a place with the Father and so I've been praying for you. That's not the way it's going to be after the new birth. You won't have to come to me and get me to pray the Father for you. You will be in me and the use of my name, which is your legal right, will give you access to the Father so I won't need to pray for you. Are you out there? Now turn with me over to uh, Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Mark's account, which was the first of the gospels that was written. Mark's account of the last thing that Jesus said before he was taken up to the father. After his resurrection, after he was raised from the dead, but before he went to the father for good. Let's start reading in verse 14. Mark 16, 14. Afterward, he, Jesus, appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. So he's risen, right? And he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, folks, I would I, I still submit the same thing. If Mark is inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us about Jesus' last time here on the earth Mark knows this is the last thing that the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to say this is going to be one of the most important things Mark ever wrote consequently he talks about some supernatural signs and so forth so much of the church world or a a significant part of the church world has taken the position that these scriptures these verses are not adequately uh, supported in the original manuscripts I think it's the American standard or revised standard version that even has a footnote or used to at least I don't know if that's uh, true in the modern Bibles. They used to have a footnote saying that these scriptures are not adequately supported by the original text. The problem with that, though, is that God knew that people would start to deny the supernatural aspect of the Word of God. So these scriptures particularly were found as a part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Which means there is no way for anybody to claim that this wasn't part of the original. We know the Dead Sea Scrolls Are a part of the original work. So here's what Mark said. Is the most important thing. That Jesus left his disciples with. Before he was taken from their sight. And he said unto them. Go ye into all the world. And preach the gospel to every creature. Well we accept that part don't we. Everybody accepts that part. He that believeth and is baptized. Shall be saved. But he that believeth not. Shall be damned. This is not talking about water baptism. If this is talking about water baptism. Then water baptism is a requirement for salvation. And it's not. The requirement for salvation is to believe that God's raised Jesus from the dead. And to confess Jesus as your Lord. So therefore what does this baptism mean? He that believeth and is baptized. It means he that is baptized in the name of Jesus. He that believeth and is born again shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. I'm reading over the punctuation. The colon there. Because there was no punctuation in the original. Jesus is talking about believing and being baptized in his name. Therefore, he said, and these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. What does he mean, those that believe in his name? Again, is this some special category that only a select few are going to enter into? No, he's saying these signs will follow those that are saved. That's what Jesus means. Now, I know the church has divided stuff up. One of the things he's going to talk about is speaking with new tongues and a lot of the church doesn't believe, modern day church doesn't believe in speaking in tongues and so forth. So the, the denominations, different church and religious groups have divided things up into the difference between being saved and being filled with the Spirit. That did not seem to be Jesus' intent. Jesus did not intend for some people to have a measure of the Holy Ghost when they're born again and others to have a greater measure of the Holy Ghost through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. God's purpose was to live in you and work through you. Meaning saved and filled with the spirit. That's what he promised in the Old Testament. He didn't promise some would get saved. And others would get the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. It's not what he said. He promised that he would live and work in and through you. So Jesus said and these signs shall follow them that are saved. Them that are saved means them that believe in his name. Now I keep saying this because so many times people think that believing in his name is some hard place to attain to. If you're born again, you believe in his name. It doesn't take some special faith to walk in what Jesus said you would walk in when you've already met the criteria of believing in his name. Well then why isn't the church doing some of the stuff that that Jesus said we'd do? In my opinion, I think we focus more on the believing part than we focused on the deposit part. See, folks, it's a, it's, a, it's a simple fact that anytime the name of Jesus is preached, you can get somebody saved. It doesn't matter what hindrance there is. It doesn't matter what the environment is. It doesn't matter if there's a million people that are screaming Jesus is a lie. If somebody believes in their heart, if you tell them about Jesus, they believe in their heart and confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord, they get saved. There's all kinds of things the devil can do and will do to try to hinder the gospel from going forth. But any time, under any circumstance, in any situation, if somebody chooses to believe that Jesus died on the cross, that God raised him from the dead, and they'll step forward beyond that choice to believe or that acceptance, they'll take another step to confess Jesus is Lord. Nothing. There's no power in hell that can stop salvation from occurring in that individual. The devil cannot stop. Somebody from getting saved. If they will do what the Bible says to receive. Well then here's the question. Why does the power of the name of Jesus. To do signs and wonders and miracles. And healing works and so forth. Why does that seem to be a more unusual thing. Because whereas the world by and large. Accepts the salvation message of Jesus. As a part of the gospel. The world by and large has failed. To hear the message that healing and miracles are a part of the same name as salvation is. If people heard the preaching. That healing and replacing body parts and miracles and so forth. Was just as readily available. For somebody to receive as anyone who accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior to be saved. Then would have the same works. Would have the same results. unequivocally. The problem is not that the name of Jesus has lost some of its power. The problem is the church has stopped preaching. So Jesus said, these signs will follow them that believe in my name. In other words, these signs should follow my children. What's the first thing he said? They shall cast out devils. Some people say, well, casting out devils doesn't belong to the church anymore. I guess the only thing the church can do instead of casting out devils is take them in. Comfort them. Make excuses for them. Now folks, we think of casting out devils in one and only one way. And that is setting somebody free. We see examples in the New Testament where uh, devils leave somebody. But the Bible talks more about the devil working through your mind than it does any other way. And in a lot of ways, you may have laughed when I said the church takes in, or I guess some people think that all the church can do is take in devils. The church has taken in devils. The idea that the the miraculous is not for today is the work of the devil, that the church by and large has accepted. See, the greatest place for you to ever cast out the devil is out of your own thinking. Paul talked about it as... In, uh, what is it, First Corinthians chapter 10, he said, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations. What strongholds does the devil put up in our lives? Imaginary ones, wrong-thinking ones. Casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. In other words, thinking something contrary to what the Bible says. For example, if the Bible says that every believer should speak in new, with other tongues, any part of the church, any section of the church, any denomination or whatever that says not everybody will speak in tongues is, has an imagination or an idea or a doctrine or a teaching that's contrary to the word. Well, where would that come from? It's the work of the devil. That'd be a great place for the church to start casting out devils. Casting them out of their doctrines would be an excellent start. So these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. First thing is they'll cast out devils. Authority over the devil is the first and foremost thing Jesus said. Secondly, he said they shall speak with new tongues. We've talked about that a little bit. They shall take up serpents, verse verse 18. Take up means to lift up like an anchor. What he's talking about here is not just in the life of the individual. He's talking about setting other people free. Fourth thing is if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them. Divine protection. Supernatural protection in other words. And the last thing he said is they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Notice that healing power is something that's supposed to follow those that are born again. One translation even says it this way. And these signs shall accompany the believing ones. Well, accompany means to go with somebody, doesn't it? Anybody accompany you to church today? That means they came with you. Well, these signs are supposed to come with you. That's what it means. Authority over the devil. A supernatural way to communicate, communicate with God, which is what speaking in tongues is. is speaking divine secrets before the Father. Or to the Father. Sufficient authority over the devil to set other people free. Divine protection. And healing power. Those are the signs that are supposed to accompany every born again child of God. If Jesus knew what he was talking about. Notice verse 19 and 20. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them. He was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them. Now if you've got a King James. Please notice the word them is in italics. That means the, the translators added it. Trying to help our understanding. Let's pull it out. And they went forth. And preached everywhere. The Lord working with and confirming the word. See, so he didn't confirm them. The idea that he confirmed them. Might indicate that they had something special. Because they were ministers. Or they were apostles. That's not what it says. It says the Lord worked with and confirmed the word. With signs following. The signs follow the word. That's why. The fact that the church. Oh, turn with me over to Acts chapter 3. While you're turning there. Let me make this statement. That's why the devil works so hard. To stop the church from preaching on the name of Jesus. Oh we preach is salvation. We'll preach forgiveness of sins. The name of Jesus works on that every time. No matter the worst sinner. What's the phrase? No matter what you've done. No matter how bad you've failed. The worst sinner can find rest. And hope in the name of Jesus. Well, what about the worst sickness? What about the person that's dealing with the worst sickness? What about a person that's dealing with a tragedy in their life where they've been maimed? Too bad for him? It wasn't that way in Jesus' day. Acts chapter 3. Verse 1, now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer being the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms, money, of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. He asked for money. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. I'm guessing he's thinking he's going to get money. That's what he asked for. Peter Peter simply said look on us. Then Peter said silver and gold have I none. But such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth rise and walk. Notice Peter knew he had something. How did Peter know he had something? Because Jesus had given it to him through the very things that we've already read. He gave him the same thing he gave you and me. He gave him his name. What did Peter know that he had? He knew he had the name. He knew the name had power. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Now, what did he do? Peter just simply helped this guy up like you would help somebody, like a football player would help another guy up uh, that's on the ground. Just very simply helped him up. He didn't pick him up. He didn't try to walk him. How could Peter be strong enough to take him by one hand and lift him up on his feet? He just pulled him, started helping him up. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, the crippled man, leaping up, stood. And, or the formal crippled man, leaping up, stood and walked, and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Could we say that walking and leaping and praising God qualifies as glorifying God? Then Jesus is. Uh, then Peter has used the name of Jesus just the way Jesus said it should be. The works that I do shall you do also. Jesus healing any lame people? Well, certainly he did. Many. We don't know how many. Maybe too many to count. Peter does the same thing. Peter heals a cripple in the name of Jesus. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Which is exactly what happened here. Now notice what happens Verse 9. All the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was him which sat at the gate. At the, the, sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. That's the same thing that it says about the crowds. In Matthew fifteen thirty-one. They wondered at all the things done. The difference was. In Matthew 15. They knew that Jesus was sent from God. So they glorified God for it. They don't know why Peter did it. Or how Peter did it. They don't know who to glorify. Now they're just wondering. They're in amazement. They wondered, filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them. In the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. They don't know what to think of this. They're wondering, how did this happen? What's this about? And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, you men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Now folks, I got to tell you, just coming from my point of view, that sounds like a stupid question. Why are you filled with wonder and amazement? What are you guys surprised at? But notice the difference in the way that we would look at things and the way Peter is looking at this. Peter is very simply saying, it's just the name of Jesus. I don't think he's saying this is no big deal. I think he's saying, you're acting like we're big deals. And it's just the name of Jesus. This is the way the name is supposed to work. But the people don't know that. They haven't heard what Peter's heard. They haven't been where Peter's been. They don't know. So Peter says, why marvel at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? I don't want to spend a lot of time here, folks, but those are the two reasons that the church says it worked then and won't work now. That the apostles had some special place with God or special holiness position or that they had some special power that we don't have. And those are the two things that Peter said it wasn't wonder where the church got the idea that that's what it was. Could that be the work of the devil again? Sure isn't God that gave him the idea. I don't care how many letters somebody's got after the name because of their educational degrees. The truth is the truth and a lie is a lie. So he said, why look you so earnestly on us as though by our own power or our own holiness we had made this man to walk. Well, if it wasn't you, Peter, who was it? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus. Peter seems to understand what Jesus meant when Jesus said, Whatever you call for or ask in my name, I'll do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, I get modern day scholars may not get that, but Peter, in all his wisdom, got it. Remember, this is the guy that they took note of. That the, that the Pharisees and the Jewish council took note of. That they were ignorant and unlearned men. I think it would do the church a, a world of good. For a lot of people to be more ignorant and unlearned. If this is the result that it brings. I'd trade a lot of doctoral degrees. That I see behind people's names. For the power of God in operation. Wouldn't you? So Peter said. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and have killed the prince of life whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. I love the fact that Peter takes a dig at him. You are all for Jesus being crucified. Now he's raised from the dead. He preaches the gospel and says, look at what you did. But now look at what God did. Verse 16, and his name, everybody say his name, name. and his name through faith in his name. Now what does that mean, through faith in his name? Does that mean Peter had some special faith that nobody else can have? Well, if so, why don't we see something about it being exercised? Why don't we see that Peter walks up to the man at the beautiful gate and the Lord speaks to him and says, Peter, this is the reason why I've given you more faith than anybody else. Because if that was the case and the Bible doesn't tell us, God is holding back. See, folks, we've got to go as much by what God doesn't say as what he does say. And if there was something special, something unique, something that can't be trans, uh, substituted or, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Duplicated. Something that can't be duplicated now that Peter did and the Bible doesn't tell us what it was and why it can't be duplicated. Then God has done us a disservice. He's left us thinking that we're supposed to do the same stuff. When if we really can't, why didn't he tell us we can't? Now I get it, the denominations tell us we can't. But I stopped listening to them as the voice of God a long time ago. The Bible doesn't say you can't. Well, why, didn't the Bible say you, doesn't, why doesn't the Bible say you can't? Because you can't. So what does Peter say? And his name through faith in his name. In other words, Peter wrote the check because he knew what was on deposit. Yeah, it took faith because he couldn't see it before it happened. He believed in what he couldn't see before it happened. But it was an unconscious faith because he knew what was on deposit. What's on deposit in the name of Jesus? Well, Jesus said the thing that's on deposit in his name is authority over the devil. A supernatural way to communicate with God. Divine protection. Healing. In such a manner that even maimed people are made whole. Healing for the blind. Healing for the lame. Healing for the dumb. Healing for the maimed. Jesus said that was on deposit. If we can accept the word of God to be true. Peter knew that. That's why he said such as I have give I thee. I've got something on deposit that will work for you. In the name of Jesus rise and walk. Now, he says, don't look at us. It's not something special on our part, which would have to include not special faith, something that that other people can't attain to. That would be special faith or special holiness or special power too, wouldn't it? He's saying there's nothing different about me or us, me and John together. Well, what did it? His name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know yea the faith which is by him how did you get the faith to do it he believed in the name of Jesus he believed in the name of Jesus yea the faith which is by him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all he's called uh, before the council the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 4 that 5,000 people get saved as a result of his his, uh, preaching Uh, he didn't even get them saved He just preached and the council whisked him off and then after he goes 5,000 people get saved. He didn't even stay for the altar call. So he's brought before the council and the council's first question is this. Well, let's back up to chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. It said, and as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. Here's what they're upset about being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They're upset that Peter is teaching something that's contrary to their doctrinal beliefs. Now, folks, the the council changes hands and the high priest is turned over ever so often. There's a different high priest in Acts chapter 4 than there was that crucified Jesus just 60 days before, 60 some odd days before. Different ones in charge. When Jesus was... Uh, being crucified and brought before him, the Pharisees were in charge. Now the Sadducees are in charge. So this thing is constantly changing. Each one, it's like political parties. Each one's trying to beat the other one up and be in charge and dominate the other one. So they're upset. So they laid hands on them and put them in prison. When they come before the council, verse 7, when they set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Notice what they understood. They understood that it was power that was beyond the natural human capability. So you've got to get the power from somewhere or you've got to have a name, an authority to do this that's beyond their own. So they asked, by what power or what name have you done this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. Now remember he was part of the group that was filled with the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2. It doesn't mean he began speaking in tongues. It means the Holy Ghost came on him to give him the answer for them. He's prompted by the Holy Ghost to respond. Peter filled with the Holy Ghost said, you rulers of the people and elders of Israel. If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent, crippled man, by what means he has been made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Peter understood what did the work. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, here's the dig. Now remember Peter just two months ago was hiding behind closed doors. He's part of the group that's, that's locked inside a room afraid that the, that the very council that he's standing before now will come and take him and the other apostles away. That was the condition that they were in in John chapter 20 when Jesus appears in the midst of them and says peace be unto you and breathes on him and says receive the Holy Ghost. Notice the transformation that took place. Peter knows the transformation that took place in him. Peter was the kind of guy that always tried to put on a tough front but he knew what a coward he was. He's the one that denied Jesus and everybody else knew it too. Now all of a sudden he goes from hiding. Trying to deny Jesus. Deny walking with Jesus and being part of his group. To being the one that's the spokesman for the group. Saying I want you to know that it was the name of Jesus that made this man strong. Jesus that you crucified. He doesn't seem to be afraid anymore. And folks I got to tell you. I think this plays into the apostles position. They knew. What change occurred in them from the new birth? I got saved when I was just before, just a couple of days before I was seven years old. I remember to this day the change that occurred in me, but it wasn't a change like it would occur with Peter, who's an older uh, uh, an adult. I remember even now the change, the the brightness, the light that came on in on the inside of me. Not that I had some dark checkered past. Not much past you can have at six. But I still remember the change that occurred in me. But I can't, I can only imagine what the situation would be if you were somebody that had lived an adult life, self-aware, knowing your weaknesses and so forth, and get saved then. And see the change that the name of Jesus would have, just being baptized in the name of Jesus would have. Then you get filled with the Holy Ghost a few weeks later. Wow! An explosion of power on the inside. Maybe that made it a little easier for Peter just to carry on with the things that he had been doing for the last three years when Jesus was with him. I don't know. But regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the situation or the environment that we come from, we still have the same thing available to us and that's the name of Jesus. And Peter is saying very clearly, it's not us, it's the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is the power that did the work. Well, has the name of Jesus changed? Then what's the problem? Us. Us meaning the church. I don't mean us as being individuals. Because I'm going to break through. If the name of Jesus is the same as it used to be. I'm going to do the same works as Jesus. But Peter knows. He knows it's the power in the name. Be it known unto you all and all the people of Israel. That by the name of Jesus. Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead even by him does this man stand here before you whole. notice Peter understood that the name equaled the man the name of Jesus equaled Jesus being on the scene himself Peter knows the same thing Jesus said whatsoever you call for or ask or, re- or call for or require or demand in my name that will I do that the father may be glorified in the son you use the name and it brings me on the scene that's exactly what it says he says the, the, the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you hold. In other words, he said, Jesus did the work because I used the name. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Notice verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. Well, everybody agrees that that part of the name of Jesus is still works, don't they? Well, then... Who is in a position to say the other part doesn't work? Has the name of Jesus lost half its power? Still has saving power, but not healing power? Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Notice the criteria. It's not education. It's knowledge of being with Jesus. That sounds to me like. John fifteen seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. And beholding the man which was healed. Standing with them. They could say nothing about it. Or against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council they conferred among themselves saying what shall we do to these men. For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. Seems to indicate that they wanted to. But they couldn't. Now let me show you how the devil works. But that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. The folks, I'm going to tell you something. There is more supernatural hindrance to preaching and teaching on the power in the name of Jesus than there is any other thing. You can preach salvation forever. The devil won't really hinder you too much on that he'll work on the, the receiving end trying to keep people from accepting you start preaching on the power in the name of Jesus the devil raises his head why because the devil knows if the preaching and the teaching of the power of the name of Jesus gets out there Signs and wonders and miracles will be done so that nobody will be able to deny it just like the council wasn't able to deny it. They said that a notable miracle has been done, is manifest before everybody, and we can't deny it. So let's just stop it from going further. How is the devil going to stop the power of the name of Jesus, the miracle-working power of Jesus, from going further? Stop the preaching and teaching on the power of the name. Where is the church world, the modern-day church world, at least the American church? They've stopped preaching and teaching the power in the name of Jesus. Folks, I've got good news for you. The name of Jesus contains all the power you need and or ever will need. No matter what your situation is or ever will be. And all we have to do is preach and teach in the power of the name of Jesus. And it will overcome anything that you've ever had. I don't care if you've had something since birth. I don't care if you've been told that it's impossible. I don't care if you've been told there's no hope. I don't care what the situation is. The name of Jesus has more power than you'll ever be able to utilize. And all it takes is an understanding and acceptance of the power in the name of Jesus, and it works. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, prove it to us, Pastor Mike. Raise somebody up out of a wheelchair. It doesn't work through proving. It works through believing. It works through believing. Now notice what the the council understood. The council understood that if people heard the teaching on the name of Jesus, this stuff would continue to happen. That's what the devil knows. The devil knows that if people continue to hear preaching and teaching on the power in the name of Jesus, miraculous things happen in their lives and in the lives of other people. So what does he do? He tries to keep people from hearing the teaching. If he can't stop somebody from teaching it, then he tries to keep people from hearing the teaching. That's, that's one thing, folks, you need to understand. Um, I've got a problem with the way some parents do with their kids. Now, normally I don't talk about parents and kids because your kids, uh, I wish there was a way you could guarantee your kids always did the right thing, but there's not. Kids get to a, an age where they can make their own choices. Your kids make their own choices, my kids make their own choices. You can teach them everything right and they can still make their own choice and turn away from God. It's just the way it works. However, too many parents let their young children decide what they ought to do about church. Because those kids will say, I don't like being in kids' church. Well, bless your heart, little Johnny, we don't want to upset you. And Johnny might throw a fit when we check him into kids' church next week. So we just won't go. So what's the end result? The end result is little Johnny grows up without hearing anything about God and about the name of Jesus. Same thing's true where youth are concerned. Well, I don't have any friends in the youth group. Well, go invite your friends to the youth group then. But so many times parents, because they don't want conflict at home, they know Susie will throw a fit at home. And we just don't want to have to put up with Susie. So we'll go somewhere you want to go. Well, where do your kids want to go? They want to go where it's fun and it's not about God. And parents fall for this stuff. I could tell you numerous families that wish... Now, maybe some families even in this room... That wish now they had done differently when their kids were younger. Because they found out through watching other families whose kids were complaining just the same way that if you keep them in church, sooner or later it starts sinking in and they enjoy it and they grow up in the things of God. Now, folks, you can't make your kids accept. You can't make your kids take the things of God and soak it in. But you can certainly do everything you can to put them in an environment where they can hear it. Why wouldn't we want to do that? Why does the average church member go to church once every three weeks? I'd like to tell you that our church is better than that. But we're about normal on that. Why? We must not really believe the power in the name of Jesus. Because if we really, if we really believe the deposit, the deposit of power that was resident in the name of Jesus, we would recognize that any time we go to church, anything could happen. Who wouldn't show up for that? But what do we do? We do the same thing that we always do in every situation, and that is we make excuses. We say, "Well, if we had a minister that had the power, I guess things would be different. You now if we had people that would hear and believe in the power that's in the name that's being preached, that's when things get different. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus just have a bad day when he couldn't do any miracles in Nazareth? It said, and he's there, if you don't know the scripture, it's Mark chapter 6, verse 5. And he could there in Nazareth, and he could there do no mighty work. It does not say he wouldn't. It says he couldn't. Now, I know that's contrary to a lot of people's idea. A lot of people have the idea that Jesus was the Son of God, and he could just do anything. Well, if so, then Mark lied. Because he said in Nazareth, Jesus could not do any mighty work. And he marveled because of their unbelief. In other words, the problem wasn't that he didn't have any power that day. The problem was the people wouldn't believe. Their choice, not his. In fact, it indicates that he marveled because he was enabled and empowered to do mighty works, but he couldn't because of their position. So what did he do? He went round about their cities and villages teaching. He's trying to nullify or counteract the unbelief of the people by teaching. Well, if Jesus tried to counteract unbelief by teaching, what should the modern-day church do to counteract the unbelief about the power in the name of Jesus? Teach power of the name of jesus folks that's the purpose here now i'm not throwing rocks you at you as an individual because i believe you believe but we still haven't heard like we should we still haven't focused and magnified on the power in the name of jesus we've made excuses well i'm through making excuses The only, way, the only way we're not going to have miracles, the only way that the, that the lame aren't going to walk around here and the blind aren't going to see around here is if Jesus lied. I mean that sincerely. That's the only way it's not going to work here because I am going to preach. This name of Jesus series may go till the millennium. Because I'm going to preach the name of Jesus. I'm going, to, I'm going to speak about it. I'm going to use every example I can get. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to so. I, you're going to be so sick of hearing the power in the name of Jesus. That the only thing that's going to turn that around. Is when you start seeing miracles. Because remember. After Jesus said. These signs will follow them that believe in my name. In Mark chapter 16. He said. So they went everywhere. The Lord working with and confirming the word. With signs following. The more we preach it. The more we'll have it. The more we teach on the power in the name of Jesus, the more you'll see the name of Jesus work. That doesn't have to be an outward show. Doesn't have to be a big production. If you start seeing the name of Jesus work in your life in a greater degree, then that's great. Let me tell you, let me close with this. I know we've got communion coming, so let me take just a couple of minutes and tell you a story. There is a, a doctor in Tulsa that I'm acquainted with, or well, used to be acquainted with when I lived there. And uh, and he would um, uh, he was a uh, well I guess he's a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist is one that can write prescriptions, right? Okay, he was a psychiatrist, and um, uh, and and he was he would volunteer time. He, it wasn't his uh, uh, bailiwick. It wasn't the way that he normally operated. But he would volunteer time in the local hospital in town. And he said there was one situation that was uh, well known among the uh, the medical staff where this guy was. Uh, just, well, he was schizophrenic, bipolar, I don't know what everybody calls all that stuff nowadays. But it was a real, real severe situation, uh, the most severe that they had any, any record of. And they had tried everything. They would tried giving this guy drugs. They would tried um, shock treatments. They would tried just about everything there was. And so this guy said that, uh, that he became acquainted with the case, not in the beginning, but he became acquainted with the case because now all they can do is just institutionalize it. And so he started uh, going and, and became acquainted with this uh, the case because of something that one of the other doctors had told him. And he said, as soon as I found out about it, he said, I couldn't sleep. He said, I'd lay down and go to sleep, and I'd be thinking about this guy. He said, I, you know, this, it bothered him for, for several nights in a row. And finally, one night, he lays down, and he can't sleep. And so he just, he, in desperation, he says, Lord, I, are you trying to talk to me about something? What am I supposed to do? Well, as soon as he asked, the Lord told him. So the Lord gave him some specific instruction. So the next day, he went to the the hospital, found this guy, institutionalized. Nobody wanted anything to do with him because he was violently insane. And so uh, he he got uh, uh, the medical staff to to do whatever he could to to secure him and and that type of stuff. And he said he wanted to go in and and, uh, uh, just do some tests or I don't know what he said. But anyway, he went in the room, got the people to leave him in the room by himself. They secured him enough to where he knew to be safe. So he gets in the room, and he says to this guy, the the guy hasn't responded to anybody in months, maybe years, and so he's just sitting there in a stupor type thing. So this guy goes in, and he says, uh, I'm going to do some experiments on you. No response from the guy whatsoever. And so he got out his Bible, and he read, and he said, These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. They shall cast out devils. So he just very simply walked over, put his hand on his shoulder, very quietly, didn't make a big show of anything. He said, in the name of Jesus, I command this evil spirit to come out. I'd love to tell you that the skies parted and the sun shone. And there was an instant result, but nothing happened. So he's he's kind of waiting for a second, and so he does it again. Nothing happens, and, and he's, he's just sure from what the Lord's told him that there's supposed to be some instant deliverance on this thing, you know. Well, nothing happened. He did it two or three times, and so he walks out of the room just feeling like a flat failure, saying, well, Lord, I don't understand this at all. You know, here I haven't been able to sleep for a week. I asked you what was going on. You gave me instruction to do this, and I did it, and it didn't work. So he walks out and leaves. Can't sleep that night either. So he gets up and gets on his knees and says, Lord, what am I supposed to do? And the Lord tells him to do the same thing. Gives him the same exact instruction he gave him before. He said, I'd already done that. What am I supposed to do? Go, tries to, he says, oh, I guess I, now I don't even know how to hear from God. Maybe I'm so sleep deprived I can't tell what's going on. So he gets back in bed, can't sleep, gets back out of bed. Says, Lord, I don't understand. What am I supposed to do? As soon as he asks, the Lord said the same thing to him that he said the first time. Well, long story short, I know, too late. But long story short, <laughs> he goes back in the next day, winds up doing the same thing for the next week, seven days in a row. Same thing, ties the guy up. You know, puts him in a chair, walks over there, lays his hands on him, says, in the name of Jesus, I command this evil spirit to come out. He's being as quiet as he can be because he doesn't want to, you know, cause a stir in the, the hospital because nobody else is going to believe what's going on. So he's doing it quiet. He's not raising any. He's in, you know, there's televised rooms and uh, cameras in all the rooms and stuff. So he's just very calmly, in the name of Jesus, I command this evil spirit to come out. This went on for seven days. The eighth day he walks in, and the, the place is abuzz. Because now all of a sudden this guy is responding. And so he walks in there. They still restrained him. But because nobody knows what to do with the, the different guy. You know the fact that he's so different now. It scared him when he was insane. Now he's scaring him when he's not so bad you know. So anyway he goes in there on the eighth day. And he, he sits down and he, he says. Uh, starts talking to the guy. He said do you know me? He said yeah. He said do you know who I am? He said no. He said, well, what do you know about me? He said, I know that you've come and prayed for me for the last seven days. He said, well, with your permission, I'm going to pray for you again and cause this evil spirit to leave once and for all. Do I have your permission? He said, yes, you do. So he went over and laid hands on him and commanded the evil spirit just as quiet as he did before. I command this evil spirit to leave him now to go and never return in the name of Jesus. The man was instantly delivered. Well, instantly. You know what I mean by that. It became the talk of the medical community everywhere. And finally they had to pin this guy down. They called him before the medical board. What would you do? We need to know how to minister to people. And he said, I cast the devil out of it." <laughs> that didn't go over real well with the medical community. So they wound up ostracizing this guy that got him set free. Cost him medically. But I've heard him say it personally. He said I wouldn't take anything for the experience. I'm glad to be turned out from a group that won't acknowledge the power of God. Now what did it? Simply acting on the word. It took a while for it to chip through. I believe that's the way unbelief is in many cases. And in his case it wasn't a matter of unbelief. It was a matter that he would lost control of his mind. He would lost a great deal of his will. And so it took a while. It took the use of the name of Jesus over a matter of several days. And who knew what was going on on the inside of him in the meantime, you know, between times where the guy was praying for him. God's still at work many times where we can't see. But it came to the place that once he got control of his will, that was all it took. Just the permission. Do I have your permission? Yes, you do. That's all he said. That didn't sound like great faith to me. But see, we talk about faith so much and we work faith out to where we leave people with the impression that everything's got to be just right. And man, if you ever make a mistake, if you ever whisper something that's contrary to the word, that's it, forget it. You're lucky to even make heaven. Much less get the answer to your prayer. Folks, that's not the way it works with God. The father who was in unbelief that Jesus couldn't cast the devil out of him, out of his son, it took him one moment to change from unbelief to faith where God could set him free. God's not looking for a reason to not help you. He's trying to find the way to help you. And it simply comes down to faith in the name of Jesus. Amen.